This episode is brought to you by Content Multiplied. It's not a secret anymore that content creation is really important, but very few people talk about the importance of consistency. And I myself have really struggled with that consistency. And for that reason, I looked for a solution and uh, Content Multiplied was a really good one for me. Since using them, I've been able to focus on what I enjoy the most, which is recording podcasts while Myla and her team are really taking care of everything else. Whether you have a podcast, you're holding keynote speeches, you're doing a YouTube series, you're writing a blog, a newsletter, a book, the Content Multiplied team can really take whatever you're producing and repurpose it into a series of micro-content and suddenly you have dozens and dozens of pieces that can be shared for you and Content Multiplied even takes care of that for you. Unlock your content superpower with Content Multiplied and go to Content Multiplied multiply.com today that's content multiply.com thanks smila and uh, let's go into the show you are listening to impact hustlers and i am your host michael Schamrat. I have made it my mission to inspire the next generation of entrepreneurs to solve some of the world's biggest social and environmental problems. And for this reason, I am speaking to some of the best entrepreneurs out there who are solving problems such as food waste, climate change, poverty, and homelessness. My goal is that Impact Hustlers will inspire you either by starting an impact business yourself by joining the team of one or by taking a small step, whatever that may be, towards being part of the solution to the world's biggest problems. In today's episode, I speak to Victor Bustos, the co-founder and COO of Refoxy Pharma, a company dedicated to developing medication that extends the human lifespan and especially maximizes the healthy lifespan of uh, people. Victor has a background in academia. He's actually done a PhD and has been a postdoctoral researcher at the Max Planck Institute for Biology of Aging in Germany. And he made the transition from academia into co-founding a company. And I'm really excited to speak about that and the state of the art of um, the science around aging and how we can prevent it. So thanks so much, Victor, for joining me. Well, thank you very much, Mike, for the kind introduction and for inviting me. I'm very happy to be here. I appreciate it. So uh, the first question I'd like to ask is to understand a bit more about you and your personal journey. Um, uh, it seems really like you've discovered this topic of uh, extending healthy aging, um, uh, allowing healthy, healthy aging uh, to happen and extending the human lifespan as your life's work. Uh, again, you've come from an academic background in that space. You've done a PhD, you've done postdoctoral research. Um, and now you're starting or you have started a company in that space. So tell us what motivates you to do that and uh, what is your personal journey to get here? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I mean, before I start, I think it is important to uh, correct a little bit uh, the statement that you made because even though longevity or the idea of extending a lifespan is a very attractive and intriguing one and there's many people trying to work on it, 
our goal really is to extend health, right? We know that um, as people get older, they become more susceptible to disease and the idea is just to extend the healthy years that people become, um, people get. But let me start by uh, telling you a little bit about my, my motivation. So very briefly, uh, I'm actually originally from Colombia and I studied biology back there. And already during my uh, bachelor's studies, I was uh, fascinated uh, with genetics and um, a little bit troubled by mortality and you know how finite it is. Uh, it's, it's sort of annoying because I was always very eager to learn and experience new things. And I always thought and I always felt that life was a little bit too short or at least, uh, you know, um, it felt that way <laughs> at that time. And, and so while I was doing my bachelor's studies, I actually um, um, read a number of publications, a number of papers that identified that by um, intervening in different model organisms and modifying their genetics, you could actually in turn modify how long and how healthy they would live. And it was, this was really a, a, revelation, a revelation for me because um, it basically implies that this aging process can be modulated through genetic factors, which in turn also means that genetic or the aging process can also be seen as a disease, right? If there are specific proteins, specific genes that can be, um, uh, let's say, targeted with medicines or with different uh, drugs, maybe there is a way for us to not necessarily just age and become more fragile and more susceptible to disease, but potentially there could be a way for us to age in a more graceful manner, if you may, and become uh, 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 basically uh, less susceptible to those diseases that come with age. Got it. Uh, I want to zoom in on that because there is, uh, on, the, on the first point uh, that you mentioned, um, there is this school of thought and there's a few people basically setting themselves the mission to cure the disease of death. So to say that basically the ultimate goal is that we eliminate death and we basically live forever. That's kind of the goal of it. Did I understand you correctly that that's not really a goal? Or how, do you think that's a goal that we should aspire to? Or what, what, what's the ultimate goal here? Yeah, that is a great question. And I don't know if there's an easy answer there. Because uh, just to, to frame things a little bit, right? What we consider death today is not the same thing as we consider death 50 years ago or 100 years ago. A heart attack used to kill you instantly and there was nothing nobody could do. Nowadays, thanks to advancements in medicine, you could actually recover from a heart attack and live plenty of years after that. And so the, the concept of death is really complex. Again, I'm not an expert in this area, but um, I do know that we need to continue strive, like aspiring to... Uh, have healthier lives uh, because the economic uh, and the uh, societal burden of having more older individuals that are more and more fragile and susceptible uh, to disease is just too high. And in addition, you need to think that we have been treating disease as they appear for many, many years. But that, that mentality is slowly changing and we're starting to become more aware that perhaps the best approach would be to try to prevent those diseases in the first place. So I think it's a little bit of the combination of these two things that we're trying to uh, move forward. 
Got it. Amazing. And then, yeah, just zooming in as well on your personal motivation. Is there any kind of moment in your life or uh, any circumstance that kind of got you to say, hey, this is what I want to work on. This is what I want to do for at least the next couple of years of my life. I mean, it was very clear. Again, since since the first time I came, I can tell you exactly the paper. This was a paper by the lab of David Sinclair that uh, basically uh, highlighted how specific mutations in a gene called CIRT uh, was able to extend um, the lifespan of uh, yeast. And again, this was really impressive for me. It just made things so much clearer. It just cl made me uh, or facilitated the decision for me that this is indeed what I needed to do with the rest of my life. And at least until now, that has been the case. It might change in the future, who knows? But uh, until now, I'm very eager and very motivated to continue working in this space. Got it. All right. We haven't actually co uh, covered much on specifically Refoxy yet. So uh, let's give people a bit of an overview of what does Refoxy do and uh, how do actually the drugs that you're developing, how do they work? Yeah, so very briefly, Refoxy is a... a early stage biotech startup that I co-founded uh, along with Apollo Health Ventures. Um, and we are exclusively focused on trying to develop new medicines that um, can regulate or in a way turn on a specific protein. Uh, this protein, which is called FOXO, uh, is very, very interesting because we know from multiple um, studies in animal uh, models, in animal and uh, model organisms, that um, by modulating or by regulating this protein, you can uh, intervene in different diseases. You can prevent different diseases. You can even treat uh, different diseases. Um, but what is even more fascinating is that thanks to um, genetic studies in long-lived human populations, we know that there are specific genetic variants from this gene that are associated with that long life or long life uh, in humans. Uh, and this is actually, like the, uh, I mentioned, just a correlation at this stage. However, there seems to be a mounting uh, evidence from multiple sources that highlight this protein as a very interesting um, target. One of the challenges, however, is that this protein is, uh, um, in a way, regulating multiple other uh, uh, downstream genes. And so it is uh, very challenging to try to uh, um, develop medicines for it. However, we are in a, a fortunate situation that we found a scientific co-founder that has expertise on trying to drug this target. And we're trying to uh, basically um, perform this early what we call killer experiments to determine whether the hypothesis that we have generated can be correct. And if they are, then they will have, we will have more arguments to continue developing uh, these novel medicines. Got it. And, and at what stage are you at? Are you kind of conducting mainly the research at the moment or are you already at the stage that you're kind of starting to produce uh, some medicines? No, no, no. We are very, very early stage. We have started a, a research and development a bit more than a year ago. And just to put things in context, you know, from on average, from idea for a novel medicine to the generation and the actually the, the marketing of that uh, medicine, 
on average, you could be looking at, you know, 12 years. Uh, and the reason for this is because not only you have to do uh, early research experiments with different uh, animal models, but you also have to go into clinical trials and uh, determine the safety and the efficacy of these medicines in a specific disease context. Got it. So that means uh, you now had a situation where you actually um, co-founded a company with Apollo. Um, and I'd love to understand a bit more about that arrangement. But I assume there's actually just a quite a small subset of investors that are willing to invest in those type of timelines, especially with startups that are kind of just starting out that don't have all the resources that Big Pharma has to develop new medicines. So tell us a bit about that challenge and how you tackled it. Absolutely. And it's actually a very, very important point. So um, I'm in the fortunate situation of working with uh, Apollo, that um, it's a little bit of an unconventional venture capital firm for two reasons. The first one, they are exclusively focused on developing therapeutics for the treatment of aging and aging associated disorders. And the second reason is because um, they not only invest in biotech companies, they also create them. And so originally when I um, finished my academic career, I started working with Apollo as an entrepreneur in residence with the idea of creating biotech companies. And out of that initial uh, work, we started uh, Refoxy Pharma in 2020. And um, precisely because uh, Apollo has this focus on company creation and they understand the risk of uh, biotech and life science investments, the idea is that you generate or we create um, small biotech projects, ideas, companies, and we test hypotheses as fast and as cheaply as possible with the idea that, you know, if something uh, is uh, actually worth worthy of more investment, then the science and the result are going to inform that. But in general, just like you said, this is not the case for many investors or more traditional investors, right? It is possible that you can have uh, perhaps angel investors in the biotech space that could have tolerance and appetite for that kind of early stage deals that would allow you to test early hypotheses. However, in general, uh, this is actually a, a challenging spot um, to finance, particularly in Europe, right? The transition from academic research directly into uh, biotech. Uh, and so because of that, I believe that, you know, or we believe that Apollo is, you know, doing a, a great job trying to bridge in that gap. Got it. And uh, you said validate hypotheses. That's what you kind of did as fast as possible, right? Um, Correct. Again, it sounds to me as somebody that's not in that space, but that's kind of started to learn a bit about that space, that validating anything fast is a big challenge, right? Like if you truly want to validate the science and the medication, as you said, it's these 12-year timelines. Um, so what what does it actually mean in practical terms to validate hypotheses and what kind of how much work did you do to then decide okay we're actually going to launch this this is something that we can do Yeah that is a that is a great question and there is no real easy answer but uh, briefly we know that there is plenty of scientists and researchers around the world that are conducting very very interesting basic research and we know that that basic research can have the potential to be translated into potentially a new biomarker or a new medicine. And so the approach that we took or we take since the beginning is to uh, reach out 
to researchers, professors, postdocs, and uh, discuss with them their science, their current findings, uh, whether they have thought about a translational project. Uh, we do this either directly reaching out by email or by going to conferences and, and, and speaking with them. And once we have identified a area of research or, or technology that could be potentially interesting, but just needs a little push to be uh, actually tested, uh, we define whether a company can be founded, right? We speak with the scientific, uh, potentially scientific co-founder. We speak with their institutions to understand under what kind of rules a collaboration could take place. And based on that, we set up a timeline, you know, anywhere between one to two or three years. Uh, because again, we're trying to test this fast, but biotech and science is not tech, right? It's not like writing software and you're, you're done. This is actually takes time. You are depending on the cell models, the uh, animal models, the chemistry. And so uh, we are aware of that risk. And that is a little bit of the reason why we try to do um, many companies in parallel, right? Because that that is going to mitigate a little bit the risk of um, being able to test those hypotheses fast and early enough. Got it. So it is still a portfolio approach of uh, then, you know, for Apollo, we're talking about Apollo now, but for them it's a, a, a portfolio approach to say, okay, we're going to make a lot of small bets here in the space and hope that at least, you know, a few of them work out and actually develop the best solution. Correct. That is the approach. Mm. But uh, just to be clear, this is this is a much more active investment than just making the bets. This is an active mm engagement with entrepreneurs or, or the people that uh, could be hired to to push those uh, new startups forward. Got it. And then uh, what I'd like to understand is uh, really the advantage and disadvantage of the position you're in. Obviously, you're backed by a great investor that's kind of um, uh, has knowledge in the space. Um, you have certain advantages of being like a small team, fast moving, um, et cetera. You don't have to deal with the red tape and maybe also lack of priority sometimes in big pharma companies where just certain things are not necessarily highest on the priority list because there's maybe more lucrative things to do or uh, other priorities and focus areas, right? So there's a ton of advantages. Uh, obviously, there's a ton of disadvantages. Uh, that's why I assume that, you know, like there is biotech startups, like, you know, in, in, uh, in, in Germany, the, um, the one that developed uh, one of the COVID vaccines partnering of big pharma to actually bring it, bring it uh, out. Right. Uh, so mm -hmm. uh, that's BioNTech. Um, so uh, I'm just wondering, like, how do you see that role? Do you think it's an overall an advantage to be a small startup in that space to be able to develop something or do you feel um at some point you may need this kind of partnership with existing incumbents to actually bring this to market so to be honest i think that both the small biotech and the big pharma are necessary players in the field because like you mentioned, being a small startup has a lot of advantages. You can move fast. You can, like we do, test hypotheses. And if they fail, well, they fail, and then you move to the next one. Uh, but you're very much focused and committed to a particular area or a particular disease or a particular approach. Um, and, and this is actually very, very useful because once you have validated your hypothesis, once you have generated enough 
scientific data that backs up your claims, you can go to big pharma or you know other investors that have more experience in things that you know you don't have the skills. I'll give you an example: manufacturing, right? I I have uh, no uh, real experience with anything related with manuf full-scale manufacturing of a particular medicine. It would be naive of me to think that I could figure that out by myself. Mm -hmm. And so going to people like Big Pharma that has that kind of experience actually makes things easier for everybody. It accelerates the generation of that potential medicine. It allows you to tap into the knowledge base of that particular company. It allows patients to potentially have access in a much faster and ready manner to that potential medicine. So I think it is a really uh, important balance between those two uh, approaches. And you know whether in the end, Refoxy or any of the companies is actually just partnering with the pharma or is being acquired, it's, it's a different, different story. But I think you need all of those players uh, to be in the field. Got it. Super interesting. Um, let's move a bit into like lessons learned on your journey. And we spoke to the, uh, this previously is uh, one of the things that you managed so far is you made the transition from academia into entrepreneurship. Um, there's a huge debate, obviously, around like loads of research taking place at the best universities and institutes like the Max Planck Institute. And then getting stuck there and not getting commercialized into actual solutions. Um, and there's also, you know, I told you, like, uh, my, my girlfriend is actually a, a PhD um, a student right now, PhD researcher and a doctor. And I just see the world's academia and entrepreneurships are so vastly different in many, many ways that I'm just amazed by anyone that makes that transition, even in terms of maybe your own mindset and maybe you already had it maybe you were always had always this entrepreneurial drive in you but i'm just wondering like how did that go for you that transition from academia to um to entrepreneurship both in terms of mindset but also really practical things of actually launching that company yeah i think it's uh like you said not not easy i i want to believe that i i always had that sort of entrepreneurial mindset Uh, but the, the reality is that I was always very uh, curious about this idea of building something from the ground up. So just to be a little bit more specific, already during my probably second year of the PhD, uh, I realized that even though I love academia I, and I really enjoy doing science, I felt I could be a better fit for roles outside academia and more uh, translational um, not only that, I also felt that I would be more motivated doing something that had a much more immediate impact. And so based on that is that I made the decision early on that uh, I wanted to transition into a, potentially a company creation role um, or potentially joining a startup that already existed and, and just try to push, push that forward. Um, but I think the point that you bring up is very important that indeed there is a lot of um, academics and basic research out there and that you may feel they get stuck. I cannot speak for you know many institutes, of course, but the impression that I do get is that we as a society could be much better if we had more scientists in different roles outside academia, right? And I'm thinking about 
uh, roles like uh, company creation roles, entrepreneurship roles, but also politics and, and the like. I think we, knew, we need more of this critical thinking approach towards reality to make informed decisions for us and for our society and, you know, in our immediate but also long-term future. Just a really quick break from this episode to let you know a little bit more about our podcast producer and content agency, Content Multiplied. With all the moving pieces of a business, you can't be stuck managing and creating new content all the time. That's why I've started using Myla and her team at Content Multiplied. It's really an all-in-one content management and repurposing solution that can handle all your content needs. Visit them at contentmultiplied.com today. Contentmultiplied.com. Okay, let's get back to the episode. Mm, that's that's a really good argument to make um, um, that, yeah, there is a need uh, for for more scientists to be in charge. Now, you, you're in Germany right now. You actually have an um, epidemiologist as a health minister. I, uh, I don't uh, I'm not asking you to make any comments there. But yeah, uh, I guess it's interesting, especially with the pandemic that we've been through to see like, okay, uh, when can experts actually then come in and take some of these roles that before maybe were were done by generalists that weren't experts mm -hmm. in the field um but yeah i don't want to talk much about that uh i'd be really keen from a practical point of view as well uh for anybody that's not in academia to understand how does this work so you've done a phd you've done a postdoctoral uh, uh research position at the max planck institute for biology of aging and you probably discovered a bunch of things there And then you decide to start a company. How does it work in practical terms? Who actually owns the IP? How do you actually go about this? Uh, how does it generally work? Is there any kind of general rules that need to be applied? Uh, I mean, there are general rules, but in the end, there's always, you know, this is a case-by-case -case scenario. Uh, there are different options, right? If, for example, somebody was doing research and during their PhD or postdoc discovered something that could be patented or could be translated, then uh, this person could theoretically start a company, ask the institution or the professor, whoever owns the IP, to license that technology into the company and then you know, coordinate from the other side with investors to get enough money to get started. I think that is a, a valid, but also very challenging approach. Uh, like you mentioned, the transition from academia to entrepreneurship is not easy. Um, but uh, I, I do believe that this entrepreneurial mindset, mindset is actually very much present uh, among researchers, right? What is, you know, a scientist, if not an entrepreneur, you're trying to come up with ways to test ideas. And then based on the information you get, you are trying to come up with new uh, uh, questions to ask. And so in the end, I, I believe that the approach is very similar. Uh, however, um, The, the practical terms in terms of long-term thinking, like how are you going to justify doing research in this area but not that one? How are you going to justify and, uh, asking for this amount of money and not that one? Those are, those are the, the, the details that are important, that are easy to, uh, not easy, sorry, that are hard to, to kind of wrap your, hand, uh, your head around them once you're transitioning. Um, so I think it is, again, important to not sell yourself short as a scientist because i do believe that there is a lot that one can bring as a scientist into any endeavor 
Um, and so just having this open mind of, you know, being able to learn anything and try to learn anything, that's going to give you a lot of ground. Mm, got it. Um, and, and that's interesting that you brought that up as well. Um, you know, in my mind, the worlds of science and entrepreneurship are so different. But so many of the basic tools and uh, ways of working and thinking should be overlapping quite a lot. And if you look at things like, you know, lean startup and experiment driven approach and all these things and, and applying the scientific method to entrepreneurship and mm -hmm. uh, rather than just randomly, you know, sometimes in the public media, you get the impression that entrepreneurship is only about geniuses coming up with genius ideas, and then they just <laughs> execute it the best way possible, and then they become billionaires. But in reality, most entrepreneurs are probably running experiments constantly until they find something that works, right? Correct. So do you, do you think it's actually closer to each other than sometimes seems to be the case? Uh, or how is the different in mindsets uh, there between those two things? Yeah, I think that they are absolutely closer to each other than people might be uh, at least consciously aware of. Um, but in as I said, in reality, both scientists and entrepreneurs are constantly testing and asking questions and trying to figure ways out to make things work, right? And if they don't work, you ask why didn't they work? And if you figure it out, then you can try to, a different way. But in the end, it's just a matter of asking the right questions and trying to find the right tools to answer those questions. Got it. Um, and then on that journey of making the transition, what was like the biggest um, learning for you or anything unexpected on that journey that came up that you can share with others? Well, I mean, even though I tried to uh, kind of educate myself and read a little bit about uh, entrepreneurship and venture capital and try to understand a little bit the world of, uh, of business, I think I was very naive uh, at the beginning uh, on how exactly companies are created and how they are created and why they're created, right? Because, again, as scientists, at least I always had these very romantic ideas like, oh, the science works, we follow the science and that's it. But in reality, you really need to make an effort to not only make the science work, but have a compelling story as to why this makes sense to do it today and to make an investment today, right? Because uh, you need to be able to align incentives for yourself, for the researchers, for, you know, for the investors and so on. And so I think at the beginning, I was really uh, naive about this, uh, thinking that, you know, if the science was good enough, everything else would fall in place, but that is not the case, right? And there is plenty of fantastic science and technology that even though uh, they have a lot of potential, since nobody has been able to actually uh, leverage that, it's really, really uh, challenging to see how they could be implemented in the real world. Mm. And I guess that refers to largely as well, just the ability of building a business with a compelling business model. It's all great if the science is amazing, but if you don't have a business around it, you'll unlikely be able to scale it up, right? Correct. Is that the challenge that you had to learn about more or how did you tackle that? That is one, that is one of the things that I have been uh, learning about. I mean, I'll, I'll give you an example, right? Everybody knows that it's familiar with the uh, pharma models of selling medicines to patients that need them, right? And they would pay for those medicines themselves or their insurances. Um, but the question becomes a little bit much, a little bit more complicated when you are talking about 
different modalities, like for example, gene therapies, right? These are interventions that took many years and many millions of dollars to develop, but that have the potential to cure genetic diseases in one single dose. And so the question that uh, companies are actually uh, trying to answer at this stage is how do you price that one single intervention? Right? And so one of the approaches that they have been taking is you know, the, the fee-for-success model where you only get charged if the intervention is successful, which makes sense. The other one is um, they, you could try to um, um, not only charge what the generation of that medicine is, but for example, try to uh, mitigate the cost of long-term treatment with other less effective interventions, right? And so, for example, if you were having a genetic disorder and normally you would have to take around $50,000 worth of medicine for the next 20 years, then maybe um, this curative uh, genetic treatment could charge you a fraction of that cumulative, uh, cumulative expending uh, to make it worth it for the biotech company to continue producing that and to make it worth it for the uh, uh, um, uh, kind of the system, the machinery that is in place. Mm, got it. Um, um, let me just uh, have a think. Uh, I had uh, three questions or ones I wanted to ask. <laughs> now I need to sure. prioritize. Uh, message to the editor just to edit that out. Um, all right. Um, so one question I was keen to cover as well on that journey that you've been on um, is really what do you think is like one of the risk, riskiest assumptions for you at Refoxy at the moment that you're making? Is there like something that really stands out? Um, again, don't uh, feel the urge to uncover any secrets, but like is, is there like a theme or like basic assumptions that you're trying to prove um, that you've uncovered through that journey? I mean, I think the, the riskiest assumption that we're making uh, would probably be that the models that we're using could actually recapitulate what we will see in humans. I think that can be said by or for uh, many, if not most, uh, biotech uh, companies, right? We work in an imperfect world uh, because we don't have uh, necessarily the best models for every disease, right? And so we work with the information we have and the models we have to generate data that could support a particular hypothesis. But even if that is the case in the, the cellular models or in the animal models, that does not guarantee that that's going to be the case in humans. And that that is the reason, one, why we have clinical trials, right, to test and to evaluate whether things are actually effective in humans. And two, that is the reason why uh, many medicines that have, you know, been developed throughout, you know, many, many years end up failing in those trials. And in the end, you never do anything with those. Hmm. Got it. And then um, how, how do you mitigate that risk as an entrepreneur, right? Like we spoke about the Apollo perspective, obviously, and they have a portfolio approach, but now you're yes. in one of their bets, right? You're inside Refoxy. Uh, so um, you're kind of all your all your 
chips are basically on the refoxy table yeah. isn't it so um, how do you mitigate that risk um you know that risk that all these pharma companies uh, pharma startups have to yeah. take off really betting on something uh any, yeah, any that is, that, advice that is, on that i know it's a tricky question very generically but um yeah would love to hear some thoughts on that yeah it's a great question and actually something that i think about constantly uh, and I think there are two different approaches that are very popular. Um, the first one is to try to have different assets within your company, right? The fact that I'm working with, uh, you know, trying to generate these uh, regulators of FOXO doesn't mean I'm going to settle with having just one, right? I would like to have a number of them so I can mitigate that risk. But in addition to that, you also uh, can think about the possibility of testing your uh, approach, your intervention, your new medicine in different disease models, right? Because again, you don't, you cannot guarantee that one model, if, if it works in one model, is going to be translatable. But if you start to see that this is actually a regular, a constant, uh, that you can uh, recapitulate in cell models, in including human cells and also in animal models, then maybe you start building up enough evidence to say, hey, this is actually... Uh, potentially trans uh, or has a, 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 the potential to be highly translatable. Trans translatable. Mm. Mm. I guess to some degree that's the the company I mentioned before, BioNTech, uh, which is based in Germany and they developed like one of the vaccines against COVID. That's what they actually did, right? They had actually, I think, the focus mainly on cancer initially to use mRNA against Correct. cancer. Then COVID came up. They kind of shifted their focus to that for the moment. Um, so I guess you need to have that flexibility in your head as well. Like what could this apply to and how can I also pivot if one of the avenues doesn't work or not as quickly as we thought, right? Correct. That is absolutely correct. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, one last question for you before we run out of time is, uh, if you think forward 10 years from now, um, how does the world look like if Refoxy succeeds? What's the vision that you're trying to work on? Well, if Refoxy succeeds in 10 years, we will likely be uh, already testing our medicines in different human diseases associated with aging. Uh, and in that scenario, I want to believe that we're going to have the capacity to not only at least treat those disorders, but potentially start thinking about expanding its use to prevent them, um, which is in the end the goal that we're trying to achieve. Thank you so much, Victor. I really appreciate your time and your insights. I think we could do many podcast episodes together on this. We only barely scratched the surface, but uh, thanks so much for joining today and really appreciate uh, and all the best for your journey. Thank you very much, Mike. It was a pleasure talking with you and happy to take your word on it. I'm happy to do more podcasts talking about uh, this fascinating subject. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. And we can already set a calendar reminder maybe for 12 years time and then we'll <laughs> do one around the public release of the drugs that you've developed. Uh, I love, I, I, there's something in me that loves this long term thinking that you kind of just forced to adopt, right? Like it's not like you, if you could release the drug next year, you would, but, um, uh, there's something about this, like even the question I asked, uh, uh, you know, what uh, What does the world look like in 10 years? I'm like, okay, maybe we should ask about 100 years and not 10, but um, in your case. But yeah, thanks so much for joining and uh, really enjoyed it.
Not my pleasure. I also enjoyed it. And just to, you know, quick clarification, just because the average time is 12 years, that doesn't mean that that's what we're aiming for, right? We're aiming a much, that, we have a much right. higher bar that we're trying to achieve in a much <laughs> shorter time.
Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share the episode, leave us a review, and consider becoming a supporter on buymeacoffee.com slash impacthustlers. This means a lot to me. Thank you very much for tuning in and see you next time. Bye.